Father, thank you for this time together and pray God it be beneficial to our understanding and that we would uh, under, just embrace this book and recognizing how pivotal it is in the Old Testament and how valuable it is in understanding the New Testament. Um, be with us today. May your spirit be our teacher. We pray it in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. All right. So here's what we're going to do today is we left off last time in chapter 14. And my hope today is to give a brief overview of the book of what we've covered so far so that no one is lost. Uh, and then what we could do is get to the point of um, chapter 14 verses 1 through 21 and talk about that briefly. We covered a little bit of it. Uh, some of it seems to be a little monotonous. Uh, I don't, definitely don't want to do that, but I do want to give everybody a, a thorough understanding of, of um, the reason why you can eat certain things and not eat certain things according to God's standards. So, uh, again, if you if you have this or you haven't had this before, I want to give you a very brief outline of Deuteronomy. So, um, uh, and this is kind of nice to have this. See here because you can see even after I'm done speaking. So the idea is is chapters one through four is sermon number one. Now again, this can be broken down into a much more detailed outline, and, and we've done this before in the in the past. We've talked about different sections that we're dealing with. Uh, chapters five through 26 is sermon number two chapter 27 through 30 is sermon number three and then chapters 31 through 34 we'll just call that for brevity's sake, closing remarks. Now there's a lot more we could get into with this, with an introduction, uh, the historical prologue, and those types of things we dealt with, but let's just give a grand overview of what's going on. Deuteronomy means second law, is what it means. The second time that the law is given. What's interesting about Deuteronomy is it's given... And the latter part of the Exodus generation. So you have the children of Israel who are in captivity in Egypt. They are set free. Remember, the angel of death passes over. Passes over what? The blood of the lamb applied to the doorpost. Death passes over. Death of the firstborn takes place. Uh, the Egyptians and Pharaoh literally drive the children of Israel out. They plunder the Egyptians on their way out. And then all of a sudden... Pharaoh has a stroke of pride that creeps up again, wants to go out and wants to attack them. The Lord closes the Red Sea on the enemies of Israel, proves himself to be faithful. And then they come to a point after receiving the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words of God in Exodus 20, they come to a point where they now have the opportunity to cross over into the Promised Land. And when it comes across on the Promised Land, if you remember Numbers 13 and 14, they decide they are going to send out a delegation of 12 people, one person from each tribe. When they come back, they say, this land is incredible, but there's giants. These people are huge. We brought back this massive cluster of grapes, so we're showing you just how amazing this land is and how God is prepared. In fact, you are probably familiar with it. It's a land flowing with milk and honey, right, is the idea of how amazing it is and those precious commodities of that time. Well, 
10 of them decide that they are going to give the people a bad report about the giants. The giants, 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 giants. We would call them the Nephilim. They're also called the Rephaim. Uh, they're also called the sons of Anak. There's different names for them, but they all come from this idea of extremely massively tall people. Uh, and here's the interesting thing is that stuff is not hidden. That stuff is not in a vacuum. Uh, we had a time when we were meeting in there uh, that Catherine Fick brought in some pictures that she had found of some fossils that have been uncovered of huge people. I mean, we're talking 9 to 13 feet tall, 14 feet. I mean, just massive people. And it was their full bodies that had been encased in the situation. And that's probably a result of the flood uh, all being a whole lot of water at one time, sweeping it all together in once uh, doing that. Uh, so anyway... They, they scare the people to death. Caleb and Joshua are the faithful. And they say, no, the Lord said, go in and take it. We're going to go in and take it. We need to go take it. Stop doubting. Trust the Lord. Let's move forward. Uh, eventually, their lives are threatened. And because they did not trust the Lord and go into the promised land, as he told them that he would deliver it, they end up in a wilderness wandering. And that first generation of Israel dies in this wilderness period. Now you have everybody that's 20 and under, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, who rise up through that, and this is the audience of this book. So it's the second generation out of the Exodus that is hearing these things. So the way Moses starts this is he goes through and he talks to them about previous victories that they've seen God give. And so we talk about the victory that God gave to them over Og of Bashan, and also over the king of Sihon is what we deal with. And, and next week, whenever we get back in here, I'm actually going to drive some nails probably into these uh, into the front of these little um, uh, shelves here so that I can hang the maps that I have of the land. But when they come in, they end up taking a massive part of the eastern end of the land. And now they are all prepped and ready to cross over the river into the area that's commonly known as Canaan. And they begin methodically taking that as the Lord gives them victory. And so they're standing on the precipice of this great opportunity. And this is where these sermons from Moses to the people uh, are going to take place. Now the interesting thing about that is, is this is the last that we have of Moses audibly speaking to the people in a leadership position because he dies at the end of this book and Joshua takes over command and leads them into the land. So you have chapters 1 and 2 are recounting the faithfulness of God, the areas that they conquered, uh, going past the Amorites, going past the Edomites, and all those types of things. And then you walk into a situation in chapter 4 that is very important. 4 is what really needs an emphasis. Chapter 4, verse 6, if we could just look at it real quick, because this gives you the whole idea about why Israel is the way that Israel is. In fact, a good way to remember this, maybe if you want to think about it, is um, in the Old Testament, Israel was to serve as a lighthouse to the nations. Okay. In the New Testament, the church is to be a search and rescue deployment to the nations. So, in the Old Testament, it was come to Israel. Israel is testifying of the goodness of God. They are a beacon that is set up out there. 
uh, for their knowledge and understanding. In the church, it's the idea of we are to go out, great commission, make disciples, teach them, reserve all that Jesus has commanded us, those types of things, evangelization. Uh, but here is one of the pivotal verses where we understand Israel's purpose. Deuteronomy chapter 4, look at verse 6. Talking about the statutes and judgments. It says, so keep them and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. Now, if Moses is talking to Israel, who are the peoples? Israel. No. If Moses is already talking to the Israelites, who are the peoples? Think about what it says. Look at verse 6. So keep, keep what? The statutes and judgments, and do them, do the statutes and judgments, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. God's heart has always been for the nations. Always. God's heart has always been for everyone. He wants them reached. By Israel living righteously according to God's standards, following all that he had commanded, it was actually going to have a permeating presence whenever the nations took notice. So look what it says here. It says, uh, in the sight of the peoples, who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation, now remember, Israel, itty bitty teeny weeny nation, right? That surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Why? Because by doing God's law, notice at the beginning of that verse, it is their wisdom and their understanding in the sights of the people. The peoples are the nations. It says here, verse 7, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it? So notice, that talks about how personal Yahweh was with them as compared to the other gods of other nations. So near to it as Yahweh, our Elohim, whenever we call on him. Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as the whole law which I am sitting before you today? And this is a huge deal. Because notice that Moses is saying this is what the nations are going to say when they observe Israel in obedience to their God. The nations, being pagans, being set apart, being little g-gods, uh, reigning and ruling over them, bowing down to idols, doing child sacrifices, eating weird things, shaving off parts of their hair, whatever. However they seek to appease and worship their gods are actually going to look at Israel and they're actually going to give a designation of righteousness to them. That's insane. I don't know if we understand the full weight of that. We're talking about pagans who are completely separated from it, but when they see something that is so amazingly and starkly contrasted as right and good in front of their eyes. They, as nations, will designate it as righteous. There's no other nation that does such righteous things as that. Can you imagine a Satanist coming up to you and saying, you know what, I've, I've been watching the way that you live your life, and it, it's just a right way to live. You see what I'm saying? That's an insane thing for a Satanist to come and say. Because what are they saying? They're wrong. Or at least the people that they're associating with wrong. Or I've not seen anything like that in my surroundings. But when I see you, you stand out. It's a beacon. It's a lighthouse to the nations. And that's how this will be. They will actually declare righteousness on these people. Verse 9, notice what he says. Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul, your life, diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen. And here's the main issue in all of Deuteronomy. And they do not depart from your, what's the word there that you have? Heart. Your heart. That's the idea. A lot of people look at the law of God as a grocery list issue. It's not a grocery list issue. 
It is always a fellowship issue, and it always deals with the idea of how do you get the truth of God's word into your heart? Because if it is not riveted into your heart, you will not obey it. It just becomes, well, I guess I have to do this in order for God to accept me. That's called legalism. If the truth of God and his righteous standards are rooted in the heart, all of a sudden you obey him because you're just convinced it's the right way to do it. It would be silly to do it any other way. Think about it. Uh, What are some things that we just commonly do because we're convinced that it's true? Why is it that we push the gas pedal in order to get places instead of stomp the brake? Why? I mean, it sounds like a dumb question, but why? Where's the great, where's, where's the break going to take you? Nowhere. Nowhere. You're going to stay in the parking lot. But where's the gas going to take you? Forward. Are you sure? Or in reverse, perhaps. <laughs> are, you, are you convinced? Last time, I pushed the, the last time I pushed the gas, I almost put a hole in the sanctuary. Well, <laughs> man, you need to go driving over at Walmart's parking lot. <laughs> so, but think about it. I know, I know it's a very dumb example. It's a very infantile example. But, but here's, here's the idea. It's true. We know it. Why? We're convinced of it. In fact, I'm so sure in my heart that this is how it works, that for me to operate in another way is just dumb. You see how that works? It's the same thing with God's word. How much more is God's word true? And how much more should we be convinced of it? And therefore, that dictates how we operate in life. Because we would have to actually violate our heart, our conscience, in order to go in a different direction, we can say, no, 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 that's not right. I just can't do that. So those verses right there, chapter 4, verses 6 through 9, are very powerful verses, very important verses that really explain a lot that's going on there. Now, as the, as the argument moves forward, there's a lot here about the dangers of falling into idolatry. And here's the reason why. The Exodus generation came out of the Egypt situation. Well, for 400 years... All they are is surrounded by these false gods and these false idols. And Pharaoh is worshipped as a god and those types of things. So this is what's been ingrained in them. Moses is very careful to let them know. Think back to when you met with Yahweh personally. You were at the base of the mountain. He's at the top of the mountain. He's revealing himself by fire and thunderings and lightnings and all this stuff. And you actually heard his audible voice speak from the top of the mountain. You didn't see a form. He didn't say, hey, picture me like this. He never gave you an image. He only gave you his word. And that is what you focus on. You only focus on the word. You don't try to replace it with anything else. Now, our problem is, we, we if we run into where we're at now, our problem is, is we often want to associate intangibles. I've got to have tangibles. I've got to have something I can see, I can feel, I can, I can orchestrate to. But as far as us just understanding that, no, it's actually a, a receiving of words that God has spoken and being so meditated on those things that that becomes my focus. Now, that's not bibliolatry. Some people would accuse that of bibliolatry. It can't be because Moses advocates it here. Remember, you did not see a form. You did not have something that was a statue put before your eyes. You heard his word. You heard it audibly. Uh, Like Charlie Clough says in his teachings, you could have recorded it with a tape recorder and played it back later. That's how God spoke to you. Remember when he spoke to you. That's the idea. So what's the focus? What are they to be settled on? To settle on his word, not to all these idols that the other nations are on. And that's one more thing that's going to set them apart from all these other nations. When we get into chapter 5, we actually have a reiteration of the law that's given, the 10 words. And we did a comparing and contrasting of what it looked like to see those in Exodus 20 and what it looked like to see those in Deuteronomy 5. We found very little differences, although uh, there was some. Um, so he, he re-gives that to them. Um, and if you would, look at chapter 5. 
Uh, let me see here. He's a lot more specific as to how to deal with different things in Leviticus. He is. In fact, everything everything else that's going to go on here in Deuteronomy is going to branch off of the particulars of the ten words that are there in chapter five. But I want to I want you to see verse. Uh, Verse 25, chapter 5, verse 25. It says, Now then, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer than we will die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? In other words, they're reflecting back on the Exodus 20 event. In fact, they didn't die from that. They didn't. But, they, but, but if you remember, what was interesting was the reply afterwards is they said, Moses, don't ever let God speak to us again. Yeah. If he ever talks to us again, we're going to die. Yeah. Now, now, it is so difficult for us to, to, to put ourselves in the sandals of those people hearing God's voice for the first time. But they actually thought that their life was going to end when God was done, which is interesting. They never wanted that event to happen again. Was it fantastic and wonderful? Uh, yes, it was, but it was also horrible. It's amazing to think about what it would have been like for God to speak. Um, so, uh, look at verse 27. Go near and hear all that Yahweh our Elohim says. Then speak to us all that Yahweh Elohim speaks to you, and we will hear and do it. So it's reaccounting that. Now watch this, verse 28. Yahweh heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me. And Yahweh said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they've spoken to you. They have done well in all that they have spoken. In other words, because they were agreeing to this covenant that God wanted to make with them in the Mosaic law, this is a good thing for them. This is a right decision that they've made, and God is well pleased. And look at what he says in verse 29. Oh, this is God speaking. Oh, that they had such a, what's the word? There it is. Heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. Notice God's heart in this. I just wish Israel always had this humility about them to come and say, God, whatever you say, whatever you say, we'll obey it. Whatever you say, we'll go there. Wherever you say, we will do. Wherever you call us, we will go. That kind of idea. Man, that's not any different for disciples of Christ now. It's having that complete let go of whatever we hold dear and say, Lord, I'm putting it all in your hands. If you call me to this, if you call me to that, I think one of the greatest things that needs to happen in this church is we need to send a missionary somewhere. We've never had a missionary in, in the entire existence of this church who has come up and been sent out somewhere. And that needs to happen. We've had people that have been affiliated with this church who have gone out for missions. But as far as somebody who was just sitting in the pew week after week and sit here and said, you know what? God has just really put a burden on my heart that I need to reach such and such people. Even if it's just going to Madison to share the gospel with people, whatever it is. What's that? Tamara Sander grew up here. Okay, she might have been one of the only people, but she didn't answer the call for missions until she was in college. You know, my thing is, is what about here? What about now? I mean, we're, we're to be a mission-sending people. I would hope that we're all on mission when we're walking out the door, you know? So uh, that's such an important thing. Uh, in chapter 6, what's special about chapter 6 is the Shema. And the reason why the Shema is important, it's from chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. The Shema was something that was often recited by the Hebrew people in order to keep their minds focused and on task. We would see the relationship of this going on uh, in the New Testament. I think it's Matthew 22 where Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. That's the first and greatest commandment. The other one is like it. 
that kind of thing. Let's read the Shema real quick. Chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our Elohim. Yahweh is one. And you shall love Yahweh your Elohim with all your heart. There it is again. And with all your soul, your life, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And how do they get in the heart? You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets on your forehead and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So notice it was by constant teaching in the home. Constant teaching in the home. Um, I got some, some little pamphlets in the mail by a guy named Paul David Tripp. He is reformed, so I don't agree with, with his perspectives on that. But he's also a very grace-oriented guy. And I've got some information out there about grace-based parenting that's very interesting. Uh, one of the things that we see that is, if you want to just pick it up, I found it extremely helpful. My wife read it. She thought it was great. Uh, so uh, one of the things that we see in here is that how is it that your kids have a love for the Lord? You're constantly teaching it. You're constantly using every opportunity that life brings. It's not where you're like, okay, kids, gather together for Bible study number 14 of today. You know, it's not one of those types of things. Being in the Word with your kids, absolutely. Nobody's going to frown upon it. But there are other ways in order to share the truth of the Word with them that are just going to happen in everyday life, relating it back to God as the Creator and how He's done those things. Well, notice here, it is setting up an entire lifestyle that forsakes everything else, and the home becomes a central teaching place about the greatness of God. This was extremely important for the people. They always kept it with them. Uh, moving on here. Uh, in chapter 7, we dealt with the idea of God bringing them into the lands and who they were going to be conquering and giving them a, a, a forethought uh, of, of uh, what they were getting ready to get themselves into with the idea of pagan worship and how they were to utterly destroy everything that goes on. In fact, you'll find a word in the Hebrew that constantly brings itself through Deuteronomy and it's the word harem and you have to get that guttural sound in the back of your throat in there like you're going to hock up a loogie you have to get the harem in there but the idea is is that you will totally demolish and utterly destroy everything in your path and it was everything from the idea of the people that were involved man woman or child it made no difference they had fallen under the judgment of God and you weren't to have any mercy in that situation even down to the fact that they're idols you were to hewn down their worshiping poles and their idols and burn everything, set it all on fire, get it all out of here, and purge the land of all of the defilement that these nations have brought into the situation. So uh, that's a very controversial thing. We spent a ton of time on that actually in the first year that we were going through Deuteronomy about the nature of God and his judgment. Uh, let's see here. When you move into chapter 8... You find that this chapter is actually all about the heart of Israel and where they stand uh, in things. Um, again, the constant reiteration to do the statutes and the judgments uh, that God will bring you into greater understanding as you rely on him. That's no different than the fellowship that we deal with uh, today. You also have mentions in verses 5, verses 14, verses 17 about the importance of the heart, getting the truth into the heart of Israel. In chapter 9, you have a reoccurrence of the giants that come up. And if you notice in verse 2, there are people great and tall, the sons of Anakim, who you know, and who know that you've heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak. And if you want, just you can write in there Numbers 13 and, and reiterate that, but it's all about the giants. Again, the situation comes back to them receiving the land, uh, 
And it's the idea of getting it into the heart. Look at chapter 9, verse 4. Do not say in your heart, when Yahweh your Elohim has driven them out before you, because of my righteousness, Yahweh has brought me in to possess the land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that Yahweh is dispossessing them before you. Verse 5, uh, Moses corrects them really quickly. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess their land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that Yahweh your Elohim is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which Yahweh swore to your fathers to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is the idea. Yes, ma'am. You might have addressed this before we joined the class. But sure. Nephilim again if they were all wiped out in the flood. Mm, that's interesting. Genetics still could have been in there. What's that? The genetics still could have been in there. Genetics could have been in there. The difficulty that we have with the genetic argument is whenever you deal in Genesis 6 and it talks about how the thoughts and intents of the heart of the earth were, were only evil continually. God makes a, a moral evaluation of everybody's depravity just running rampant. But he draws an interesting comparison there to Noah. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And it has to do something not with, with Noah's personal righteousness, but there are some inklings that seem to deal with the idea that the fact that his genetic line was not defiled. And so that actually works against the genetic argument, if that's the way it goes. I don't know that I totally buy that. Possibly. What's that? What about the daughters? Possibly the daughters, it could have happened. There are some people that believe that the cry of Nephilim was like a cry wolf in order to scare the people so that they wouldn't enter into the land. So they were they were saying there were giants in the land, but they were more kind of making it up. And by using the word Nephilim, they had stamped it on there. Now, the idea of the genetics of giants, yeah, that's not unusual. They didn't necessarily have to be Nephilim to be giants. That's like saying Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is the only tall man to ever live, you know? We know about, you know, I don't remember what the other guy is that's so huge that he's in the Ripley's uh, museums or whatever, but he was a massive guy that had like a suit, and it's like, good grief, you could fit your whole family in the suit kind of thing, you know? But it's that kind of thing. He's not the only one. Uh, so you would have had the sons of Anakim would have been that. And if, and if we remember correctly, whenever the children of Israel came against the Anakim, and Anak, I think was his name, uh, when they conquered him, they actually took his bed as a trophy. And they said his bed was, you know, six feet wide by nine and a half or 12 feet tall, something like that. They actually kept his bed to show, you know, yeah, we killed him because that's what we were supposed to do. He was a pagan, hated God, defiled everything, was creating sin and havoc on the land, you know, worshiping false gods and idols and who, who knows whatever else. But we kept this as a trophy to show, yeah, we conquered this guy. The Lord led us into victory. Uh, so how did they end up on the other side? We, we know that that happened anyway through the genetics in some way because we have Goliath, you know, Goliath of Gath. You can, you can research uh, the descendants of Gath going through some of that situation, you find, well, yeah, there's a strand of giants here somewhere. So, yeah, Jamie's probably right. It came through uh, some of the daughters uh, that were taken on as far as Noah's sons were concerned. Um, it's also been suggested that that's where the idea of uh, red, yellow, black, white came from, is the daughters were each yes. different, had different genetics, and that's why there's yeah. um, there's races, if we want to call it that, that there's different no, different shades of skin for people. Yeah. Four pigmentations of the yeah. human race. Yep. And there's actually a guy. Yeah. There's a guy uh, named Arthur Custance. He actually has a website. You type in his name, Arthur Custance, and there's a website. His books cost about 150 bucks a piece on eBay. You can go on his website and read it for free. 
So it's, it's very odd how people want to make money on that. But it's called Noah's Three Sons. And you can read about that. And he traces some of those things about where the gene pool may have come from. Uh, he traces things about the designations of, of the people of the earth and, and where they spread out geographically after it happened. The blessings that Noah gave to his sons uh, is one of the other ways that he traces. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So following those blessings that he gives as well is a good way to look at it. So yeah, they would have cropped up in that way. Uh, again, the taking of the land is very important. Uh, the idea is guarding against self-righteousness. You know, it's interesting how we pray pretty hardcore about something that needs to happen when it's a serious situation. And then when God answers and we get into the situation, we kind of relax our prayer life. And we relax our dependency and we relax our reliance. Well, everything's good now. So, God, you can kind of stand there, you know. Oh, it's bad. It's bad. Come here. Come here. Come here. You know, we got to cling to him real quickly in those situations. Uh, so notice he's warning against them to get a prideful heart. Because just as the Canaanites had defiled the land and had been removed from it, he can still do that with Israel. Just be, And this isn't something that's important. Just because Israel has a covenant with Yahweh doesn't mean that they're beyond discipline. That's not the way that it is whatsoever. Nobody in the family to, well, since you're, since you're our, our, you know, if I said to Nathaniel, since you're our first son and we love you so much, we're, we're just not going to spank you. You know, second son, second son's going to get all kinds of junk, you know. But as far as you're concerned, eh, we're going to give you a freebie on that. You, you will have a brat on your hands, period, in no time at all. So just because y'all, just because you always made this covenant with them doesn't mean that they're exempt uh, from any, ugh, excuse me, any type of discipline that is going on. Uh, let's see here. Chapter 10. Um, again, if you guys wanted to just read through this on your own, there's there's so much stuff here to cover it shortly. And we've rehashed it before. In fact, if you go to uh, gbcportage.com slash D-E-U-T, you can probably go back and listen to one of the summary lessons from last year whenever we summed it all up. I think we did a little bit more thorough things there. But the problem here in, in chapter 10 is also... Obey the Lord, don't get prideful, fear Him, keep a tender heart. It's the whole thing. It's the attitude after you've received the land. When you move into 11, 11 is all about getting the land. Uh, 11 is all about the children. Um, let me see here. Uh, keeping, uh, keeping their children uh, as, as far as setting that model for their children. Receiving the land. Land is mentioned over and over and over. Uh, let me see. Um, Verse 18, real quick, 1118. 1118 was also something that they read along with chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. They used to have something on the right hand of the door, on the inside doorways of their house, called a mezuzah. Anybody heard of mezuzah before? It's a little box about this big, kind of looks like a box that you burn incense in if you closed it up kind of thing. And it would hang there on the side of the door. You can actually find some on eBay for like 13 bucks or something like that. But if you opened it up, you actually had certain scrolls that were in there, just, just segments of scripture. You'd have the Shema, uh, chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. But you would also have uh, chapter 11, verses 18 through 20. So let's read that since that was considered very important uh, for, for Israel's livelihood and, and their understanding. You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hands, and they shall be frontlets on your forehead, and you shall teach them to your sons, <clears throat> excuse me, talking of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk along the road, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So you can probably see a similarity between that little section and what we saw in chapter 6. And so whenever they would leave and they would walk out, and if you've seen the Chosen TV show, 
that's on YouTube and some of that, or how they're trying to depict that. They've actually got one situation I was real thankful that happened where Peter's uh, walking through a door of his house, and when he walks by the doorway, he goes, and he, when he walks out, they would tap that mezuzah before they walked out as a reminder of them of doctrine. Um, you know what? I don't think that's legalistic at all if we were to do that. I think we actually need more of that going on to where we would be reminded of those things. So anyway, uh, the land and all that that's coming in. Uh, chapter 12 deals with the theology of sacred spaces. Beforehand, it was a situation where you could build an altar to Yahweh and you could sacrifice to him anywhere that you wanted to. Abraham did it. Isaac did it. Jacob did it. Uh, Noah, when he came off the ark, first thing he did was he set up an altar wherever he was at worshiped God with it, started sacrificing and, and praising his name. Now, in this situation, God says in Deuteronomy 12, when you enter into the land, there's a specific place. I'm going to set myself somewhere in the land, and that is the only place where you are to come and worship. And so he gives you all of this situation going down through all of chapter 12. And it seems like one of the greatest reasons for that being is uh, is that the nations that they're conquering and they're, they're dispossessing out of the land, they worship wherever they wanted to. And this is where we get into the whole idea of, you're probably familiar with this in the Old Testament, the high places. And they worshiped on the high places. The thinking there was, is anywhere that is more elevated than just the common ground that we all walk on is considered a place closer to God, and therefore that's a place where you want to worship so you get noticed by God or whatever false god that you're worshiping. God does not operate like that whatsoever. He says, I'm going to designate a place, and that's how you worship me. It's not trying to get closer to me in proximity or elevation or anything like that. It's the fact that you're obeying what I've said and you're doing it how I've said it. That's the big difference. Now, if you want an interesting violation of this, you can just Google. If you have the literal word app on your phone, you can type it in with the quotation marks. Sins of or the sin of Jeroboam. You write that in there and you look at it and there is sin after sin. And this, and these, this king committed the sin of Jeroboam, the sin of Jeroboam. The sin, and what is the sin of Jeroboam? Jeroboam set up altars and sacrificed wherever he wanted to instead of where God told him to. And this was a sin that plagued generation after generation after generation of kings over and over and over and over. And you found how incredibly disobedient they were. Uh, that starts in 1 Kings chapter 12 and it stretches all throughout uh, the existence of the kings. In chapter 13, chapter 13 is a hard chapter for people. Because here's what you have is, everybody's in their communal living, living as a nation, worshiping Yahweh their God, and then someone comes along and they make a prophecy or a prediction, and whatever they say comes true, or they did a miraculous sign, and it comes true, but then they say, hey, let's go worship other gods. How do you deal with it when they've done their David Copperfield, Penn and Teller little act in front of everybody? But all of a sudden, the message that they're going to be speaking to you is walking away from Yahweh. And what you find is immediate execution. That's how you deal with the situation. So, in the first part of 13, it deals if somebody comes in, a prophet or a dreamer comes in, and you deal with them. Then when you get into chapter 6, or sorry, verse 6, it says, If your brother, your mother's son, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you cherish, or your friend, who is as your own soul, who is as your own life, who is closer than a brother, Entice you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods. How do you deal with them? You execute them immediately. Even though they're close to you, you execute them. Yep. And because of taking over this great plot of land, you had all these different cities everywhere. If you're in your city and you hear somebody up north that's part of your people, part of the Jewish people, that they've turned away and they served other gods. You send out a delegation, you go check it out, you do a thorough CSI of the whole situation. And if you've concluded that this is what they have done, then everybody is to go in and to destroy those people and wipe out their city. 
So treason against Yahweh was met with execution. God was serious about worshiping his name, him and him alone. Now in our tolerant, um, sissified society, we could, ob- we could often say, well, that just doesn't jive well with me. I just don't like how that sets with me. That's cool. God's never concerned about whether or not we're pleased with what he says. But what he's trying to press home here is the fact that there is no other true God to be worshipped but him. And I think sometimes we could stand to take him much more seriously than what we do. And I think the Bible calls for us to do that in a way that is kind of shocking and unnerving to us. So chapter 14. The beginning of this deals with the idea of being holy unto the Lord and not worshiping in the ways that pagans do, such as shaving's one, shaving one's head. That's whenever you see Jews, Orthodox Jews, and they have the curly cues. They're maintaining this part of the law where they're not shaving the sides of the head because that was considered a sign of false god worship at that time. Like, well, what are we doing right now? Uh, am I in sin because I just got a haircut and that kind of thing? No, we're not under the law. We're under grace. We're not holding these things. The church is not Israel. Israel's not the church. We are not a nation of people. We're a transnational body of Christ. So it's a very big difference. <laughs> so let's read. Uh, we've got seven minutes here. Let's read chapter 14. We're going to read through all this stuff. I'm going to make one statement, ask if there's any questions. We'll pray and be done. Sound good? Here we go. Chapter 14, verse 1. You are the sons of of Yahweh your Elohim, you shall not cut yourselves nor shave your forehead for the sake of the dead. For you are a holy people. And that word is very important. Kadosh is the Hebrew word. K-A-D-O-S-H. Kadosh is how we would transliterate that. And it means you are unique and set apart and pure. You are a holy people to Yahweh your Elohim. And Yahweh has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples, out of all the nations who are on the face of the earth. So you are to be a holy people, not to participate in this demonic worship, such as shaving your head or cutting yourself. If you remember the prophets of Baal dealing with Elijah, they're all cutting themselves, calling on their God, rain down fire from the sky. How come you're not listening to us? And they're cutting themselves and bleeding everywhere. Good grief. How crazy is that? So, Verse 3, you shall not eat any detestable thing. Now, all of a sudden, it moves to dietary laws. Uh Uh-oh. Good grief. What can we still get at Golden Corral? Well, let's move on here. Verse 4, these are the animals which you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, and the ibex, which is a type of gazelle or mountain goat. Some of these things i got to look up because I'm not readily familiar with it all. That's okay. The antelope and the mountain sheep. Any animal that divides the hoof and has the hoof split in two and chews the cud among the animals that you may eat. Sorry, that you may eat. Nevertheless, verse 7, you are not to eat of these among which chew the cud or among those who divide the hoof in two. The cannibal, uh, sorry, the can, the cannibal. <laughs> Woo, don't eat that. <clears throat> the camel and the rabbit and the chaplain. And as though they chew the, sorry, for though they chew the cud, they do not divide the hoof. They are unclean for you. The pig, because it divides the hoof but does not chew the cud, it is unclean for you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, nor touch their carcasses. These you may eat of all that are in water. Anything that has fins and scales you may eat. So now we move from unclean animals to marine animals. But anything that does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. Now we move to birds. You shall eat any uh, clean bird. 
But these are the ones which you shall not eat. The eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, the red kite, the falcon, the kite of their kinds. Real quick, a, a kite is a type of hawk that they would have said at this time. Uh, not, not all of us know that. And every raven of its kind, and the ostrich, and the owl, and the seagull, and the hawk in their kinds, the little owl, and the great owl, the white owl, the pelican, the carrion, the vulture, the cormorant, which is interesting because that is actually an aquatic bird. Sometimes it's known as a shag. We might think of it that way. It's not just a rug, my friends. It's also a bird. Uh, the stork. Why? Because they bring babies. And the heron in their kinds. And the hoopoe. And the bat. Now into insects. And all the teeming life with wings are unclean to you. They shall not be eaten. That you may eat any clean bird. You shall not eat anything which dies of itself. You may give it to the alien who is in your town so that he may eat it, but and, or you may sell it to a foreigner. For you are a holy people to Yahweh your Elohim. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, here's what's interesting. is It deals with the idea of cutting yourself, shaving your forehead, and it, deals, and it ends with the idea of boiling a goat in its mother's milk. Why is that? Because that was a pagan fertility ritual practice that went on at that time. What about all the birds? What about all the insects? What about all the fish? Why is that? Two reasons. Number one, it's because a lot of those that aren't to be eaten are because they're scavengers. In other words, they're picking off the dead carcasses of other things in the field, and that makes them even more unclean and unsanitary to eat. Number two, and honestly, this is the, this is the best reason I found through this, because I looked into it a lot. I looked into it probably way more uh, than, than I ever thought I would. Um, God said, don't. That's really what it boils down to. God said, don't do this. You're to be set apart in this way. Obviously, everybody else was doing it. And he said, just don't do it. So that's really what it boils down to um, in that situation. So that's a lot to cover in there. There's not really a ton of elaboration. We could bring on all kinds of pictures of what all these animals look like, but I don't know if that's necessary. Are there any thoughts or questions? I know that's like a huge crash course and where we're at in Deuteronomy. We can pick up from here and move forward pretty well. And we are going to move forward pretty briskly. I don't know that I'm going to bog us down as much as I have in the past with researching examples all throughout the text and that kind of thing. We can do that if you want to. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm more up for you guys walking away saying, yeah, I really got something rather than, man, I wish I would have joined another class besides Jerry's class because <laughs> I'm just not sticking with he it. He talks a lot, but he don't say much. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Anything? Anything at all? Okay. Again, why are we studying Deuteronomy? Just to reiterate this. If you were somebody... Gosh, man, my lip is peeling like crazy. Forgive me. Um, a lot of new Christians get into the New Testament. A lot of times we're told, well, read the Gospel of John. Then we kind of get them into Romans or something like that. And we start talking with them or meeting with that. A lot of times the Old Testament is forsaken. If you were somebody who wanted to break the ice with the Old Testament, you would want to do it with Genesis. You'd want to understand the beginning of Exodus. And you'd probably want to definitely grab Deuteronomy. Because if you have a general concept of what's gone on in those first five books, and Genesis and Deuteronomy really cover a ton of it, uh, if you have that, you can understand the rest of your Old Testament, no problem. Because it all plugs into the foundation that's laid in those first five books. So that's the reason why we're going through that. Another thing is, it's the third most quoted book uh, in the New Testament. So, important stuff. Nobody's got anything? I find Leviticus fascinating. Leviticus is interesting. Yeah. 
I've been writing through that. And yeah. Yeah. yeah, but you really need a good commentary a lot of times to, to go through it because there's just some practices we're just totally not familiar with. Yeah. But good grief, it brings a lot of light to the New Testament. It really does. So, good. Well, let's take a moment and pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, maybe if we could just have some time, maybe an hour or two, to read through the first 14 chapters. And just to get a general overview and, and grasp and understanding, God, your word speaks. It's important, every bit of it from beginning to end. And I pray, God, that it's not lost on us, Lord, but we think about uh, the calls for holiness and also, most importantly, for our hearts to embrace sound doctrine so that it's deeply rooted in us and that we will function properly and pleasing before you, but also that you have a heart for the nations. And it's by our engagement of them with your word uh, that they can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. So, God, we thank you for your word. And no matter what it is, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Love you.